So many battlefield scars were driven in plush cars. This life as a rap star is nothing without God. I'm born. Hey! Mm, mm. Y'all don't even know, huh? Stop playing. Don't act like you know Tupac when I quote him. You know what I'm saying? Ambitions of a rider. I don't, I don't. Thank you for listening to FarsightTV.com. You are locked into Side Life Radio. And as always, I am your host, Ooh, Adisa the Bishop, a.k.a. The Black Dragon of the West Side, a.k.a. Zato Ichi, a.k.a. The South Bay Shogun, 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 a.k.a. The Iron Hook Assassin, also known as the Black Cortez Killer. Ain't nobody keeping it triller than me, homeboys and girls. Bishop Chronicles is the world's first podcast dedicated to giving you West Coast perspectives on hip-hop, health, and fitness trends. Ain't nobody out there, nobody, lacing your cranium with this here vibranium? Boy, I puts it in like a decent bishop. So you can be down now or you can bow down later because the West Coast, oh geez, we stay greater. We really do. If this is your first time listening, thank you. I appreciate you. Now have a seat. Um, understand this, this show, this thing we call the Chronicles. This may not be the best thing, uh, but it show enough is the West thing. Uh, but it show enough is the West thing. Uh, but it show enough, show enough, show enough is the West thing. Yeah, ain't Yes. So please do me a favor. Yo, hold on. Pause the tape. If it, if it, if it, if it, stop. So what we're going to do is I need everyone to go. I know that y'all are loving it on iTunes, Spotify, Mixcloud. We keep hitting the ranks up there, boy, on Mixcloud, right? Shout out to Mixcloud. I salute thee. Uh, um... YouTube, we're really starting to do straight video. That's the pivot. That's the pivot. So the next few shows you hear are going to be the last only audio shows. And then it's straight video. If you go right now to YouTube, Bishop Chronicles Podcast, subscribe please there. Subscribe please there. And you will see the videos. Our first one is called Should Cops Learn Jiu-Jitsu? And it's not the conversation you think it's going to be. Don't even already go, yeah, I think so. Or no, they shouldn't. They are abusive. You need to pay attention to the conversation that's not happening in that discussion. But what I'm trying to tell you is please subscribe on YouTube, Mixcloud, iTunes, Spotify, right? And we're up jumping the boogie, right? We're trying to turn it up, right? Because the, the, the podcast is growing. Now, remember, I always say... Just pass the show on to one person. My new favor to ask is pass it on to two people. We trying to up jump the bug. Huh? You going to help your boy? Ugh, give me that dap then. Uh-huh. That's what I'm talking about. 
And it don't have to be this show. It can be the last show. What? That love on lockdown? Come on now. Stop playing. You know you love that show. You know you love that show. Man, I just had one of the homies hit me. He was like, yo, I just heard the coronavirus show. Still lit. Mm. Right? Come on, man. Stop playing, bro. You know what I'm saying? The BCP army is popping the most right now. Maybe, maybe, maybe you listen to that Nipsey Hustle or that Tupac show. Stop playing. That Tupac show about Machiavelli, people still love it. You know what I'm saying? And I'm grateful for it. You know what I'm saying? But I need you to make them subscriptions, please, to the YouTube because we're really just going straight video soon. And I got some shows that are fitting to be lit starting right now. Not that the other ones wasn't popping the most, but these are fixing to be the real ones. You know what I'm saying? Because once we get the uh, video poppins and I'm in front of that camera, I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. DeMille. Then we start winning. And now we go straight into the heartbeat props. Um, heartbeat props are where we give a shout-out to people who are alive because they're alive and we can appreciate them now. I want you to reach out to three people. Call them for five minutes. Do not text them or write them. Call them for five minutes so they can hear you say why you appreciate them. Um, the first is uh, my homie on IG. All these people are on IG at Thomas Kempo Karate. Uh, Sensei Anthony Thomas. I actually interviewed him a while back on the show. Um, he's got a new school that he's opening up teaching young people in Hayward. I want you to follow Thomas Kempo Karate because he has been my homie for so many years. And we actually met on the Abu Dhabi Combat Club boards way back. And then the Stone Cold Billy Ray boards we used to chop it on. Remember those? Woo! Um, but he's a good dude teaching kids, you know what I'm saying? The beautiful martial arts path, okay? So check him out, Thomas Kempo Karate, at Thomas Kempo Karate. Now my next one, man... The slow, trembling tear is in the right eye. Observe it. Ray Ray is trying art, but the deal is every word you got to do the little underscore. So it's like Ray underscore Ray is underscore trying underscore art. My dude bought a copy of Bobby Bruce in the Bronx. I appreciate all the people who buy my book, but I always love it when you get a book and you take a pic because I did not repost it on at Real Hip Hop Chess. And don't forget to follow the OG at Bishop Chronicles on GP. But Ray Ray, man, I love your post. Very inspirational. I appreciate you for uh, buying a book, man. Means a lot to me. Means a lot to me. Um, And finally, last but definitely not least, hell no, um, at us, the number four, us dot Bay Area on Instagram. Us, number four, us dot Bay Area. That is where you're going to see my man, Uncle Damien. I'm going to have him on the show soon, real soon. Because let me tell you, when we talk about people on the front lines, right, for the youth, I just don't know anybody doing it like Dame. I don't. Uncle Damien speaks. Listen, go to at us for us dot Bay Area and you will see where the youth are organizing and trying to help themselves, you're going to see him on the front lines with them. And not all in the way. He's helping them build their platforms for themselves and stepping back to let them shine. And that is the essence of real leadership. And so I want to salute all of you. I want to thank you all for improving me. Okay? Now, make sure you give your heartbeat props. 
Before we go on to the West Side Word of the Week, though, I do want to have a quick word. Um, I want to um, give a shout out to my brother, Will Diaz, from Half Gracie. Um, he passed away uh, this week while teaching, and he was one of my first training partners. And um, he had a heart attack, and um, I miss you, dog. And um, he was a good dude to me. Uh, back in the day, if you know old school Half Gracie, me, him, and Cam used to be training all the time. And um, I got so many good memories with that dude, man, um, in the early Mountain View days, man. And Will, I miss you. God bless you and your family. Um, you will absolutely be missed by so many. And now it is time for the West Side Word of the Week. The West Side Word of the Week is brought to you and powered by Mshaka Media, delivering world-class creative and editorial services to entrepreneurs, influencers, and those who seek to maximize their message. You can reach Tembisa Mshaka at Mshaka, like the king, Mshaka Media on IG or Facebook slash M Shaka Media. The West Coast word of the week is a verb. Jug. J double O G. It means to get something for cheap. So rock with your boy. Uh, we're gonna take us to a time pre-quarantine. You know what I mean? We at the uh we at the uh swap meet. San Jose, what is it, Santa Clara County Fairgrounds, you know what I'm saying? And you just got that uh that 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 mango stick with the chili on it. And you wanted to get some new Dickies, right? But it was looking like they was for like $30 over at this one dude's spot. And you was like, man, I want the Dickies, but I also want to come up on some house shoes. Them black corduroy ones over there, bruh. And then your boy walk up smiling with a bag and he opens it up. Oh, what is them? Straight Dickies with the fresh crease. And he's like, whoa. How'd you get those, blood? Because I'm trying to get mine, but like I thought you said you had just as much money as me. And he gonna be like, fool, the original price was like, you know, 40, but I got it for 20. Woo! Jugged it. Know what I mean? Hashtag on the cheap. And that is your West Coast Word of the Week. So you don't get stolen when you come out here. So now we go to the haiku. A haiku is a Japanese poem of three sentences. The first sentence is five syllables. The second sentence is seven. The third is five. It's five, seven, five. I've become addicted to writing haikus. I have a whole book of haikus coming out called A Dead Man's Diary. Well, the whole book isn't poetry, but the back half is. And they're themed. And so uh, this particular haiku... Like in, in the book, there's themes about there's there's haikus about jujitsu, there's haikus about stoicism, there's haikus about Islam, there's haikus about romance, there's haikus about uh, family and all this. And so this haiku is unique. This haiku is one that is based around. Uh, I think I told you how I've been vegan for about two months now, and it just occurred to me the other day that 
Because I, I love being vegan, but that's because it's not hard to be vegan because something inside me pivoted. I talked about this on an episode or two back about how one day my body just didn't want eggs. And the next day my body didn't want meat. And the next day my body didn't want milk. And that was pretty much it. So I've been eating vegan. Um, I would like to let the world know I have lost eight pounds. <laughs> but I look devastating. Don't let that fool you, homie. You can get it. Um, but that I really started wondering, I told you that I really started to Im Im deliberately increase my transcendental meditation. Um, I believe meditation is crucial. And I started wondering if my body's pivot like that was a product of my meditation. And I started meditating after going to Camp Tazo, um, with Riza and, you know, uh, Xi'an Ming. USA Shaolin Temple, follow him always. Um, and I've been meditating for years, but it was something about going to Camp Tazo with Riza and the squad that really, really reinvigorated my, my, my meditation practice. And I've been wondering if my vegan pivot was an internal listening of my true self to itself. I don't want to sound too deep and too weird. Too much of a hippie, but it's true. Um, a friend of mine was like, yo, I, I don't think I could be vegan because I like meat too much. And I said, you know what? I thought I did too. But once my body made this pivot, I don't, I don't really desire. I love lamb. Anybody that knows me knows that I will punch somebody in the face for some lamb. The old me. But I don't care about meat right now. Don't miss it. Um, and so this haiku is um, a celebration of my internal connectivity and how that is expressing itself through what I eat. Normally, haikus do not rhyme, or rather, that's not fair. Haikus do not have to rhyme. Most of mine do. This one does not. Um, I spent a lot of time in lockdown reading burning some incense out of my dragon incense burner, Smaug. I have two. One is named Smaug. I haven't really figured out the other one's name. I haven't named it yet. But me and Smaug be out back. Know what I mean? Burning some of that blue sage. Know what I mean? Um, and uh, drinking iced tea that I make from Scriznatch. You know, I just found some... Uh, tea that I've been holding on to for like five years because I'd be holding on to tea like y'all be holding on to weed and uh, I broke it out and made some it was so good dang I think I used all of it too it really wasn't that much um, I got it from Chinatown like five years ago more than that <gasps> that tea was from 2014 crazy anyway uh, here is the haiku Mike um, because I just talked about that backyard scenario, I'm going to need some birds and I'm going to need, um, I don't know. Can, can you give me some, like, like a breeze? Like, I don't really want it to be windy, but how do we, can we do a breeze? If not, don't trip, but let's, let's get the birds in the mix. You know what I'm saying? It's a, it's a good California love out here kind of vibe. All right. Me and my vegan self eating some fruit 
in a bowl. Here we go. Observe and let's chill. Yes, Mike. <laughs> exactly. Here we go. Here we go. Apples and berries. Cherries, granola, and tea. Internal wisdom. What? Yes. Carpet bomb your cranium. We're going to do that again. Apples and berries. Cherries, granola, and tea. Internal wisdom. Ooh, yeah. Just let that marinate in the cockles of your heart for a bit. You know what I'm talking about? If you make haikus, if you do haikus, if you follow cool haiku pages, send them to me at Bishop Chronicles. If you send me a haiku, I'm probably going to repost it. And now we're going to talk about the chess and life strategy section of the day. This section on chess and life is uh, it deals with, with youngsters. It's called the three C's, college, career and crime. Here we go. Education is the root of freedom. The less you know about yourself and the world around you, the easier it is for people who don't like you or don't care about your well-being to do with you as they please. College should be the goal of every person. It is so crucial to understand your position, especially if you're poor. How did you get to where you are? Who are you? Where did your family come from? Who benefits if you don't get out of the hood? You may not be able to answer all of those questions, but you should seek them out. The more you understand about your position, the easier it will be to get out. If you don't go to college, then you must have a career, something that actually pays your bills. Work does not have to be something you hate. You should enjoy it. People who are certified in Various computer applications like Adobe Illustrator, Pro Tools, Photoshop, and Windows can get really good jobs that lead to a secure paycheck and a more fun life. Beyond technology, there are all kinds of trades like plumbing, mechanics, roofing, etc. that provide services people always need. If you fail to do one of the above, you are sure to fall into the trap of crime. If you have not stayed in college to ensure your education, and you have not cultivated a skill to build a career, then you have chosen crime because your stomach will still rumble. You still need lights and clothes. Staying alive demands that you have certain things. You will become a criminal to survive. Low-level theft, drug sales, and drug use, it always ends up badly. Sacrifice comes from a Greek word meaning to make sacred. In the old days, the Greeks would take lambs, flowers, and the like and burn them as an offering to the gods. Even though I normally eat this, I'm making it sacred by giving it to God for a greater victory, a blessing, help in the time of need, etc. Everyone must sacrifice something to win in the game of life. If you want to be a football player, a chess champion, or Olympic swimmer, then you will sacrifice your time for those things. When the other kids are at the parties or going to the movies, you will be missing them so you can exercise, study positions, or spend your days studying videos of your favorite swimmers so you can be like them and eventually better than they are. 
The king's most valuable ally is the queen. She is stronger and more capable than the king in so many ways. She can drive down the ranks like a rook. She can smash into people at angles like the bishop. A pawn in the shadow of a supportive queen stands taller than any enemy he may encounter. But even she may be given up, sacrificed, and made sacred for the greater good of the total goal of victory. But her death is made sacred only if victory is the end result. Think about your goal. Think about what you're really willing to sacrifice to achieve the glorious version of yourself in your mind's eye. You must be prepared to endure things that others would never consider to achieve things others have never achieved. If you start the journey trying to take shortcuts, you will never get to where you say you want to be. Embrace the path and all the fury it throws at you and make yourself truly worthy of what awaits you at the summit. The three C's are pretty much a guarantee. Live by them or die by them. I hope you choose life, college, career, and crime. The three C's. Don't forget. Bobby Bruce in the Bronx. Boy, you better cop that on Amazon. Now, I mean, Kindle or paperback, get yours. So uh, what am I reading? You know, I've been doing a whole book a week thing. I'm almost done with uh, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor by Donald Robertson. I really recommend it. I think for anybody over the age of like 13, it should be pretty much mandatory reading. Um it's about Stoic philosophy and how to apply it in your life and get some mastery over how you think, your fears, over how to discipline your mind, your body, your your whatever your weaknesses are. This book is going to help you identify them and overcome them in a real way, you know, not a get rich quick or get healthy quick or, you know, but you'll get rich. You'll get healthy. You'll get clear. You'll get the peace that you seek. This is a good book. Um, I didn't finish it though, because I've been sick, man. Like, uh, honestly, last two weeks I've been, been kind of sick, but, um, so I just been on, on that recovery mode, but I'm pretty much recovered. And so now I got to talk about something that's kind of hard to talk about. And that is, you know, looking at a lot of what's happened in terms of, the uprisings and the looting and the breaking of buildings and the burning of certain buildings has made me think about what the future is going to be like for America, but specifically black America, because um, obviously there's issues in the community, right? And obviously a lot of those issues um, are compounded by um, a lot of systemic and economic problems. And that has made me reflect on issues in black leadership and how do we start rebuilding in a good way, right? Um, but not just for, for black America, all of America. Meaning that when I say that, don't ever try to frame me as an all lives matter kind of person. I love humanity, that goes without saying. But um, this issue, right? Um, around black people, economics, and leadership is really rooted in this idea that, you know, there has been an ongoing war against black economic upliftment since the moment we stepped off the plantations. 
When you look at the crisis of black leadership, you have to understand, and I'm never going to stop saying this because you need to think about the generational impact of this, is that the United States government created programs like the counterintelligence program. Remember, if it's a counterintelligence program, that means that they already acknowledge there's intelligence happening and they're trying to counter it with ignorance. And Black Pro, which was just a, a, a government op against black organizations and institutions that were trying to thrive. So I want you to think about the fact that the United States government invested in the destruction economically and culturally of black people. So when you look at the crisis of leadership and you look at the economic crisis in the black community, I am telling you it is the fruit that the government wanted us to bear. J. Edgar Hoover said that he didn't want a black messiah, quote unquote. He didn't want us to have a good leader, right? And they had 3,000 informants, 3,000 informants in the 60s. What do you think that did to the ripple effect of black leadership? So when you look at Detroit and you look at Chicago and you look at L.A. and you look at New York and you look at Baltimore and you look at the hoods all over Miami, all over the West Side, come on, man. It's not an accident. It's a government op. But even before COINTELPRO was a formal thing, look at Marcus Garvey and the Black Star Line, the Black Star Movement, right? When you see, oh, you thought that was just a rap group, Black Star? Nah, you better look into Marcus Garvey. I'm talking to black and white people. This man was brilliant and created the best black org ever. And when I say the best, I mean thriving, doing good business, et cetera, et cetera. I'm telling you, Marcus Garvey and James Baldwin are two of the most underrated black men in the game ever. And Angela Davis and Asada Shakur are two of the most underrated black women to drop knowledge. If you ain't read their work, you slipping. But here's my point. Marcus Garvey said, now I'm going to say this, this is just me talking, that the, the white man's recession is always a black man's depression. You understand me? Because if he's feeling it, we through. If he's feeling it like, yo, pockets are getting light, boy, streets is dry. Heard me? Now, one of the things, listen, get this book, More Philosophies and Opinions of Marcus Garvey. Go get that book. I'm paraphrasing right now, but in that book, Marcus Garvey said something to the effect of that, like, remember, like when he says, whenever there's a big economic crash in America, the white man, I mean, says like, yo, that we, we got a depression going on. And, and the black man is like, yo, we got a depression going on. And he's like, you don't have a depression because you didn't build the empire that the white man just lost. You didn't build those trains, those planes. That's not you. So you didn't build the empire that the white man lost, let you, yet you say, I'm in a, a, a depression. No, that's not real. So the black man needs to start building his own things. But we know, because I just told you, that the government has invested billions in undermining those activities. 
Understand what I'm talking about ain't no Illuminati, uh, 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 QAnon, uh, uh, weak sidebar, nothing. This is real, documentable. Years ago, he said, you know, look, man, this is like an emergency level event and we can't afford to not do it. And we didn't do it. And now look at us and look how the government did Garvey. Look how they did Garvey. And then we can look at the overall crisis in leadership since Garvey. I'll bet you they created COINTELPRO because of Garvey. Right? And now let's look at the crisis in the black community. No disrespect to anybody, but I got to do this just so we're clear. Jesse Jackson. I saw footage of Jesse Jackson as a young preacher one day. This was a long time ago. I don't even know where this footage was from because you can barely find it. Whoever owns it is not trying to let you see it. It was Jesse in the old days, bro. He was ripping mics like a G. I was like, yo, who is that? I actually asked my dad. I said, who is that? He goes, man, that's a young Jesse Jackson. I said, I couldn't. I didn't recognize him. Not because he looked hella different. He spoke different. He had a different posture. He had a different fire in his eyes. He had a different way about him. He lost that way. I'm going to tell y'all a story. Y'all ain't ready for this story. This is facts. This is my real life. I used to work for a technology software company called Radiate. Radiate made software. uh, It was like we did the first software with ads, what was known as shareware. And we were in Mountain View. And like we for a while, we had more people than AOL had. And I was on the PR team. Okay, came in from scratch, built it with 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 the founders who came from Terre Haute, Indiana. And um, not long after being there, Jesse Jackson starts coming around with the Rainbow Coalition talking about the digital divide. So um, somehow I knew somebody that knew one of their people and they was like, yo, um, Jesse Jackson is trying to set up a thing to set up for 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 black businesses in the Silicon Valley to thrive in the digital divide, but we don't have anything. Well, Radiate had extra desks, phones, chairs, all kind of stuff. I said, man, bring a truck. You can have all this extra stuff because we hired everybody we got to hire. This is a fact. This is verifiable. Jesse's people came, picked up everything, took it to the office. A few months later, they announced Jesse Jackson's coming to town. I said, hey, I call him up. I'm like, yo, man, I uh, wanted to know if we could get a meeting with Reverend Jackson to show him our software and what we do and how we might be able to do some things. Dude was like, no. I was like, what? He was like, look, man, everybody's trying to be with Jesse right now. He ain't got time to meet with y'all, right? Because he's saying like, y'all ain't Apple, y'all ain't Microsoft. I said, bro, you're talking to me on the phone that I gave you. Sitting at the desk I gave you, in a chair that I gave you. And you telling me you're not going to let us meet with Jesse? He's like, nah, Jesse's got bigger fish to fry, bang. Da-da-da-da-da-da. Out. I was blown away. This is how we got done. And everybody who's in the valley will tell you Jesse just came through making threats, cashing checks. Then, after talking a whole bunch of stuff, you saw him over the years just kind of wither out, okay? He was, 
<laughs> counseling Clinton during his scandal? And he had a scandal of his own. What? Yeah, people don't forgot that part. But I ain't forgot. And the people ain't forgot. Why are you trying to hate on Jackson? I'm not trying to hate on Jackson. I'm talking about a crisis of black leadership. That's a crisis. The person who I saw on that film in that church in that day was gone. I don't know what happened to him. I'll tell you this, though. I was in Ferguson with RZA when we opened the World Chess Hall of Fame Living Like Kings exhibit. Shout out to Susan Barrett. Shout out to the World Chess Hall of Fame. When Jesse Jackson arrived in Ferguson, go look it up. The young black people told him to get out of Dodge. Because he's known for just showing up and hijacking situations and getting you to donate to Rainbow Push and all of that. But the young people know they weren't being served. Jesse left, disgraced. There was a crisis in black leadership. Al Sharpton. I interviewed Al Sharpton years ago for one of my radio shows. It was called One Mic. One of the early first like digital talk shows. I think it was on Icicle Networks. I think that's what it was. Cumulus? No. Cirrus? Cumulus? I forget. Anyway, I had Al Sharpton on. But let's just be real about Al, man. He been questionable for hella years. Then we find out this dude was wearing a wire Takashi style. Yes, bruh. Before Takashi 6ix9ine, there was Al Sharpton. He was wearing wires, dog. Now, they say he was wearing just wires for the, for the mob. Bruh, why would anybody just wear a wire for the mob? And if he really did the mob they, the way they said he did, how is he still walking? But I'm just saying, you think he didn't wear a wire against his own people? Come on, bro. You kidding me? You kidding me? And now you can say, oh, you can't prove he wore a wire against his own people. I don't need to. Look at him, bro. Wearing a wire, period. If you wear a wire once, you're going to wear it again, man. And you wonder why it don't really go nowhere. And you wonder why the young people are setting stuff on fire. Because their leadership is wearing wires and trying to get paid in the valley. For doing very little. Right? And then, you know, just to, just to give you some context. Malcolm X. You can look this up. If you don't get on... Netflix, first watch the movie Malcolm X. You need to read the book. But first watch the movie Malcolm X. Then watch the documentary Who Killed Malcolm X. And you'll see the FBI agents came to his house and he flipped it on them. He recorded them without knowing. That audio is in full on YouTube. And they asked him, what can you tell us about Elijah Muhammad? Anything you want to tell us about? He was like, man, I ain't saying nothing, fool. But what did the nation say at that time? Look how they drew caricatures of his head bouncing into hell. Look how they said, oh, he just wants to take Elijah Muhammad's place and he wants to, he thinks he's better than the messenger. That was never the case. And that audio proves it. He told them FBI agents, man, I ain't got nothing to say to you. We ain't, we, we won't be in touch. That's what integrity looks like for your people. That's what integrity to the mission of uplifting your people looks and sounds like. Go listen to that.
When I was young, I grew up thinking that Farrakhan was pretty dope. And he taught me a lot. I'd be lying if I said he didn't teach me a lot about Islam, about self-respect, about honoring myself, about having dignity in my poverty, like, uh, 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 like Muhammad Ali used to talk about. Read Muhammad Ali's greatest fight if you need reference. But like I said in the article that I wrote in Vibe hella years ago on Islam and hip hop, I was going to join the Nation of Islam. And then I saw Khalid Muhammad. I was in the second row and he started disrespecting Malcolm X. I got up. I walked out. Now. I'm not going to get into a big conversation about Louis Farrakhan because he's very complex. And the discussion about him and his leadership has been very complex. However, I'll say this. As much as I've seen him do for black people, and I've seen him resurrect drug dealers, directly the teachings of Elijah Muhammad and Farrakhan have seen him resurrect drug dealers into family men. I'm talking about dope dealers and killers for real. So anybody who's critiquing Farrakhan, you have to understand that he saved people you'll never know. And he's resurrected people you've never seen and don't want to see. But here's my point. I have a bunch of different critiques, but here's my main one. Look at the death toll in Chicago. Every weekend, them dudes are making new outdoor records of murder. And so I just have to say, what happened? If Chicago is the home base of the Nation of Islam and they can't stop the killings, what is happening? I have my own ideas. Because again, we're talking about COINTELPRO, we're talking about dope dealing, we're talking about cartels, we're talking about Latin kings and gangster disciples and everybody else in between. There's a lot happening. But the fact that those murders happen so much is, it gives me pause. What is my point? My point is that nobody is coming to save us. My point is, young people of America, you are impressing me as you go out and protest. All of you, black, white, Latino, brown lives matter. Know that. Asian lives matter. Women's lives matter. Black women's lives matter. Okay? We are all out here struggling. Don't think that hashtag negates anybody. But what I'm telling you is that no one is coming to save us. You can say whatever you want about uh, Elijah Muhammad, but he understood that. He understood that. Everybody over here dying of COVID in the black community, a lot of them are dying from pre-existing conditions that if you read the book, How to Eat to Live, you wouldn't even have. But COINTELPRO told you, Elijah Muhammad's bad for you. You can't follow him. Now, what are all these white politicians saying on TV? Well, if they didn't have pre-existing conditions, the COVID wouldn't be impacting them so much. Oh, he just blamed you for dying because you chose his food over your own. <laughs> he just told you it's your own fault for eating in a way that he said was better for you and you believed him. You better get how to eat to live and start following them prescriptions. 
and not whatever whatever prescription they're trying to give you on TV. Side effects may include uh, testicle explosion and exploding butt cheeks. But buy some. And here you go. Oh, how can I sign up? Uh, is that online? <laughs> Tripping. Listen, here's what I'm trying to tell you. Nobody is coming to save black America. Nobody is coming to save black America. But any good that happens to black America is good for the whole. You understand? I've said this before. I'll say it again. In the Chinese word for crisis is the same character for opportunity. We have an opportunity now that all these things have been burnt down, now that all of this stuff is in disarray, now that people are acknowledging that the education and the economy needs new ideas, new blood, new understandings. This is the time, young America, young black America, Latino America, young women of America, LBGTQ plus of America. Now is your time to step in to the new America that you say you want, but you got to do it with integrity and you got to do it with a plan. Because without a plan to rebuild business, all the marching is going to feel senseless. And this is what happened in the 80s and the 70s and the 60s. And that's why the cycles keep going. You, young people of America, have an opportunity to break the cycle right now with a new kind of education and a new path to entrepreneurship. That's it. Do not kid yourselves about the nature of right now. So, I am about to introduce you to a man that I believe can help you better than most people. His name is David Frazee. He is a man who used to be an attorney who got into VC, venture capitalism. He's managed billions of dollars over the years. He understands how education and money works. He's taught people how to build businesses around the world. I'm talking about in South Africa, in the Middle East, in China, different parts of Europe. For years, he's done this. And we're going to talk about the economy and we're going to talk about technology and we're going to talk about the opportunity of now that you have to step up and into a new reality, to step up and into a world that you can create with your own ideas and efforts, but with the right understanding. You know how like how many times I've been around a bunch of black folks and they be, but yeah, man, the white man, you know, he ain't going to tell you how to do that like he do it. Talking about business. David Frazee is that white man who will teach you how to do it the way it's done in the valley. And the valley is a global economy on its own. All right. When I think about the stuff that I hear from David Frazee, I feel like. His work makes him like a, the economic John Brown. He's going to give you the ammo, but you got to take the shot for yourself. Nobody can take that shot for you. So if you're ready to take that shot, if you're saying you want to make your own business, this 
is that time. So you're about to hear from that man. I want to de-escalate and clear the air real quick. I'm going to let you hear a poem by my man Jason Douglas Dix about right now. I think art is a big part of how we get forward. And so you're about to hear this poem and you're about to hear this conversation. I want you to remember to defend your smile. These are intense times, but you've got to stay rooted in your joy. People try to bring me down every day and it never works. Because I've trained myself to defend my smile. I keep a small part of my heart and a small part of my brain unattainable to the outside world. Understand that if my joy brings you pain, then you're going to need some Novocaine on me. I want you to win this day, this week, standing on logic and love. I want you to think for yourself and act with compassion. You understand? Listen to this poem. Give thanks. Go be great and listen to David Frazee. If you hear what he's saying and you act on what he's told you, a lot can change for you and your community. Bishop Chronicles, Farside TV, West Coast. Semantics, a poem by Jason Douglas Dix. Protests are easily finessed into actions that do not serve the best interests of the oppressed. But demonstrations are creations that pour copious libations of remonstrations in search of reparations. And to protest is to emote, to let forth from deep in the throat vital energy that may not promote that which is needed, to vote. You protest against, but demonstrate for. The former comes to an end, but the latter yields far more. Demonstrations help more people see with clarity and compassion the true you and me. And with such vision, we may yet grow to be a society that is truly, reliably free. So be careful with your words, ego, and actions and incline away from knee-jerk reactions. For semantics are key and it's not too late to stop the protest and start to demonstrate. The Ink and the Intellect, a poem by Jason Douglas Dix, inspired by Asheru's Judo Flip. Bishop Chronicles family. Look, I know the world is crazy. I know a lot of madness is going on, but you know what's important? You know what this show is about? This show is about you. This show is about you having new information, being able to move through it, and, and, and navigate these crazy times. And so, you know, the main thing that I've really been thinking about is business. What does the future of business look like? You know, uh, if you listen to the coronavirus show, I told you in the beginning, we're headed straight towards depression. And you know what? It keeps getting worse. Um, but if you, uh, I don't read Chinese, but people I know who read Chinese say that the word crisis also has in it the word for opportunity. Right. So while a lot of things are going away, a lot of new things are coming up and entrepreneurship has to be at the front. We're starting to understand the power and the in the importance of local business. We're starting to really, really understand how much, um, 
not only getting it done, but getting it done right matters. So I have a very special guest on. His name is uh, David Frazee. He is an old friend of mine. He is an old ally of HHCF. Um, and his background is in entrepreneurship, business, big business, right? So this is the kind of guy, like, you know, when people say, all the guys at the top never tell us how to do stuff. That day has changed. This guy does. David Frazee, thank you for being on Bishop Chronicles. Adisa, it's a pleasure to be back. I uh, I really appreciate you. People actually forget that he was one of the first guests. He actually split the original bill on Bishop Chronicles with Jizza. You understand? Crazy. Um, and so in these times, I wanted to talk with him about entrepreneurship right now. I wanted to talk to him about the state of business, despite where the economy is at. Um, but before I do that, this is important for me, for you as a listener. Um, you know, I'm black, obviously. David's white. And um, white privilege is a real thing, but everybody doesn't start with that silver spoon. You, sir, are not somebody who started with a silver spoon. So before you became the guy you are now, can you talk about who you were, where you started? Sure. So I actually grew up in rural Kansas, right on the Oklahoma border, which is the part that during the Civil War fought for the South, not the North. And, okay. <laughs> and you know, it's, it's sort of I don't know when this episode will air, but uh, we're taping on May 31st, which is the 99th anniversary of the Tulsa race massacres, uh, which is not too far from where I grew up. And the Klan was fairly active. So they call those the Black Wall Street massacre, right? Isn't Black it? Wall Street. You had a. Your listeners should definitely Google this if they don't know about it. But uh, there was an enclave of about 10, 12,000 blacks that had built their own post office educational system, enormous wealth, prosperity, and were moderately insulated from a lot of the turmoil and uh, clan activity of the rest of the Oklahoma area they neighbored. But you can only remain outside of that for so long before jealousies and hate uh, get the better of people. And it's considered one of the considered the largest uh, single day of violence uh, based on race. But I guess I don't know if I really believe that because 80 years before that, that would have just been called Tuesday. So at least post re (laughs) at least post reconstruction. So (laughs) that's true. No, that's true. And so you're from Kansas now. Now, did, did you come from, you know, uh, a rich family? Did you come from middle class? Like what, what was your background and how did you get to this point where you're working in Silicon Valley, like with some of the biggest people in the game? Like, I need to understand how that transition happened. No, I actually grew up a poor kid. So my family's income, the first year I went to college was $6,700 a year and it inched up a little bit, but always remained comfortably under the poverty level, which from a financial aid perspective is great. But from a having to live where you have to do five paper outs in the summer and three in the school year just to help feed your family, not so great. And I worked my way into Stanford uh, just through, I think, tenacity and force of will. And I, I look back at that and I was not even close to the smartest where I grew up. But one by one, everyone who had more talent effectively voted themselves off in this perverse game of survivor. They turned to drugs. They uh dropped out. They just saw no point in continuing. They were bored. And the carnage of talent was catastrophic. You think about how much 
human progress was wasted. And that's just one small town of 10, 11,000 people where I grew up. Uh, but I came to Stanford, uh, taught actually in the computer science department, watched the birth of the internet economy uh, from the ground floor. And I've, I've worked in all different levels. So currently I run a global venture capital fund with my partner. But before that, I was a serial entrepreneur and some technology startups and also was a major equity partner at some of the world's largest law firms dealing in technology and innovation. So I, I've seen this movie from all sorts of perspectives and all over the world. I've been working you know, globally since the 1990s before people thought that that was a thing you could do. And now right. it's kind of come full circle and it's the hot thing to do. But dealing yeah. with. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, no. I so said dealing with Brazil and China in the 1990s was no easy thing. Mm hmm. Now, you know, I think because I'm from the Bay and I'm black and I say like, yeah, uh, my man David is a VC guy. People know, you know, in the Bay at least what a venture capitalist is. What does that mean? What does it mean to be someone who is inside the world of VC? What is VC? Well, Explain it's, it to the, to the layman. Explain it to someone who's never heard the word before. Sure. It's a form of of risk-based investment, meaning we find opportunities and there are just different kinds of VCs, venture capitalists at different levels of risk, early stage, late stage. But you you find an industry sector, a theme, a geography, some competitive advantage you think you have as an investor. You find at-risk opportunities, you put capital or money, in our case, you know, three to five million dollars into a deal. And you work like a maniac to make that deal valuable. You know, you help bring in mm -hmm. help when it comes to finance, legal operations, tax strategy, global distribution, sales, business model, revenue, whatever it takes. It's all hands on deck all the time. And when you're successful, you take that three or five million dollar investment and you make 20 or 30 or 100 million dollars. And the investors in venture capital funds, there's some high net worth families and individuals, they typically are larger institutional funds. So for example, one of our investors is, uh, actually two of our investors are pension funds. So I'm literally managing money for nurses and janitors who are dealing with COVID and I have the retirement funds. And so this is something right. you have to take as a sacred trust and seriously. So we work extra hard to make sure that we de-risk and work with our opportunities to return that capital and then some. And it's different from other forms of investing. And this is really something I've been thinking about for 20 years. In Silicon Valley, we have pioneered a different approach to investing that is able to create enormous wealth in a compressed period of time. And I think the numbers of Silicon Valley speak for itself. The Silicon Valley 150 public companies their market capitalizations are bigger than the GDP of either Japan or Germany. So we certainly figured out how to right. do this. And I've really reflected how do we take that magic and export it everywhere else, not just to the world, but the rest of the United States. Because a lot of the U.S. outside of you know, New York, Boston, Chicago, and some you know, major tech centers, Seattle, Austin, I can rattle off a number. A lot of the United States is mm -hmm. becoming structurally a second and third world country and opportunity is passing people by. The knowledge economy is not being shared. And we often talk about a digital divide as if it's simply a matter of mobile phones and bandwidth and computers in schools, but it's more fundamental. The tools to create the enormous wealth 
are not accessible to people. Right. Right. Now that's deep. Isn't it deep how the digital divide changed or like the definition of it? Because, you know, for the people that remember, and I can tell you like this, this is, this is a a fun fact. When Jesse Jackson brought the rainbow coalition to the Silicon Valley, their offices had nothing. And what I mean is they had only acquired a building. And I worked at a small startup at the time called Radiate, which was um, basically a, a a software or a shareware app. That is, I don't even think anybody uses that term anymore. Shareware. Basically, you get the app for free, um, but there's ads that are going to come to it. And the, the, the flagship uh, software product we had was a thing called Gozilla. It was a download manager in the beginning days. So this is when, when MP3s were still relatively illegal and, and stuff like that. They had a download manager for video and, 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 and music, right? And so Jesse Jackson's office, somehow I got wind that they were in town. They needed stuff. So I called them and they were like, yo, we need um, – <laughs> We need desks, phones. We have nothing. Like, we don't have anything. So we had at Radiate all this extra stuff, and we gave it to uh, we gave it to Jesse Jackson and the Rainbow Coalition. Like, they came and picked it up. And then, like, Jesse Jackson actually came to town, like, two months later. And we were like, hey, you know, we'd really like to meet with Jesse and, like, show him what we do and, like, the stuff that we're trying to make happen. And they were like, Jesse's too busy to see you. <laughs> like, he never met with us. He never visited. He was on our phones. But, like... <laughs> The digital divide was a real thing, Um, but it morphed in so many different ways because it started out just being like, do they have computers and do they have uh, laptops or internet access? And now the digital divide has just morphed in so many ways. Can you can you talk a little bit more about how it's morphed? Well, I have maybe an interesting perspective on this because a lot of the work I've done over the last 20 years on top of my normal day jobs, which are 70, 80 hours a week in all cases, a lot of the work I've done is in emerging countries. So I've spent, you know, <laughs> a good chunk of the last 20 years flying 100, 200,000 miles a year to places like South I Africa. You're in the Bay right now. Indonesia. I can't believe you're in the Bay. <laughs> uh, well, I'm grounded right now because I can't travel. I was actually supposed to be in Morocco and Egypt this last month teaching entrepreneurship. But, mm. you know, I have witnessed globally in countries where I think a lot of people had written off the possibility of innovation. I've watched them create vibrant, incredibly important technology communities that are creating in the aggregate 20, 30 billion dollars of revenue a year and millions of jobs. And I look at that. Can I ask, what are they doing? Is it are these are they doing software apps? Is this about like IT stuff? Like where where are they finding their niche as as these emerging companies get into technology? What 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 fields are they growing in? Well, it really de- it depends on the country, and I'll make some generalizations here, and I'll come back to the United States context. But yeah, you know, let's exclude China because when I started working with China in the '90s, it's not like China is today. China is in a whole different class. So I'll exclude them because they have some of the things I'm about to exclude, like semiconductor manufacturing and research mm-hmm. and and life science. But if you just think about you know countries like you know Brazil, Argentina, South Africa, Northeast. Uh, I'm sorry, Middle East, North Africa, Southeast Asia, there are gaps. You tend not to see a lot of basic medical research. Uh, There are 
to the extent you do medical applications, they tend to be in software-based things like managing national healthcare systems or triage, early diagnostic tools. You tend not to see basic scientific research in certain high-end fields like semiconductor telecommunications, uh, just because the scientists in those fields tend to go to Europe and the U.S. and never come back. But where you see a lot of innovation... And that's changing, by the way. At least everything I just said, I can think mm-hmm. of a counterexample. Like I just toured a facility two years ago that did uh, FDA-level manufacturing in, in Uruguay, which is one of the first in South America, and they're doing great. But most of the innovation is software-enabled or technology-enabled, and it follows a trend which is probably not too surprising. The two first things that get built in these countries are payment systems and delivery systems. And if you think about it, people want stuff. To get stuff, you have to buy it. So you need the payment logistics right. and you need it delivered. So you need the actual delivery logistics. So, And once you've enabled that, a lot of other businesses start to spring up on top of that platform. So that's where the multiplier effect starts. You know, you, you, you know, we talk in the United States often about disruption as if that's the only thing that's possible to innovation because that's, you know, for a 20-something typically male, that's the macho thing to do. You go disrupt an industry. Right. We're but, gonna, it's going to mess the system. But, but in many cases, there's no one to disrupt. And so you actually have to build it. And then if you're lucky, not be disrupted by someone else and maybe disrupt yourself. But so to exist. Yeah, you just need to exist. And it turns out when you have that problem, everyone else has that problem, too. You may be dealing with the problem of the underbanked for 180 people, 180 million people in rural Indonesia. And you may be dealing with telecommunications speeds and bandwidth constraints in South Africa, where what was broadband wouldn't even be a DSL line in the United States. And so. You have to solve these problems. And the interesting thing is a lot of these solutions, although we view them as simply copycats, they're you know knocking off U.S. business models. That's the way we look at it. That's not actually true. A lot of these are adaptations and, and solutions to problems that we don't have here and frankly have a lot of application to the United States. Look, anyone under the age of 30 is structurally unbanked in the U.S., at least statistically. So a lot of the solutions you see in Latin America and Southeast Asia have a lot of applicability here. And, you know, there's a lot of hubris, I think, not to look outside for innovation, but innovation is global. And it doesn't matter if this technology or this cure for cancer comes from Vietnam or Mississippi, if it can save a life and it can change someone's capacity, we need it. You know, human potential does not know borders. Mm, That's really deep. Say that one more time. Human potential does not know borders. And that's actually the thesis of my venture fund. My fund is called Richmond Global. And we invest half our deals in the United States, half outside in these emerging countries uh, through something called Endeavor, which is a nonprofit people can look up. But we look at their at the companies they have identified as high impact entrepreneurs. And my partner, my fund actually founded that nonprofit. So that's why we focus there. But whether we look at a deal in the United States or in Mexico or Argentina or, or Indonesia, the criteria is the same. This is something that has the capacity to be transformative on a regional and global basis, is scalable rapidly, has business fundamentals, and is something which can return extraordinary value to our investors. I mean, that's what every VC strives for, but. Right. So let, let me ask you. So, you know, when it comes to the digital divide here and it's, it's, it's exciting to hear about the global innovation because I think that's important. And I also think that sometimes in America, we have like a false sense of how ahead of the game we are, but 
as it deals specifically with 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 Black America, how have you seen the digital divide shift in its nature, and what are the opportunities that you see today? Yeah, well, I'm glad you brought it back because there's the point I didn't have a chance to fully get out is having witnessed that all over the world. I stand in a room in Buenos Aires and think, here's 2000 people. Why don't I have 2000 people listening to me in Detroit or Philadelphia, (laughs) you know, who have the same capacity Mm. to innovate and dream and, and do extraordinary things with their lives. And that is really where I think the big disconnect comes. There, there are lots of initiatives and they're crucial by the way. So nothing should be interpreted as saying they're not important to teach, for example, kids how to code or, uh, you know, had to be involved in STEM. But I think I want to go one level up, which is I don't just want, you know, 12, 15% of the programmers uh, to be black. I want half the CEOs, you know, I mean, why are we, you know, right. You know, the, the, the capacity to actually create the innovation from the top is what interests me because it turns out you don't need anyone's permission for that. So I think of the people I've met in my travels, like I'm in Saudi Arabia, where as a woman, you can't even get a business license because only like your father or husband can do that. And I met two women who were building a $50 million a year business who didn't ask for permission. They just did it. And I I see it is crucial. Well, let me continue on that. I, I talked. I'll just start with women, then come back to other groups. But there's a consistent story that every woman has in these countries. And by the way, the, the female entrepreneurs are just extraordinary in emerging countries. And the story goes along, you know, this path typically look in the United States, I wouldn't be doing this. I'd be the vice president of Citibank. You know, I'd be gunning Bye. for Jamie Dimon's job. But here I don't have that choice because I can't deal with being groped every day at work and I don't have the opportunities and I wouldn't be promoted. And so I said, I don't need these guys. I'm just going to go build my own thing. And so the best talent in those markets is being diverted into entrepreneurship because the normal system, which brings talent into, you know, the system, capital S, is not available to them. And I think that's the analogy here is, you know, you can put up with someone's boot on your throat or you can just be the one running the company, period. Right. And I don't say that from the front and do it. I don't think that applies to everyone. I mean, there's personality traits that may not necessarily be universal, but, you know, whenever I speak to an audience, you know, of a hundred people, 200 people, I think there's someone in this room who is going to have the capacity to transform their community and their economy and to do something extraordinary. And I don't know who they are and they don't necessarily know who they are. Maybe 10 years later that that strikes that person and they say, I know now how to use those tools. I've now encountered a problem I consider to be something I can solve that's not intractable. And that deep insight that allows one to say, I don't need to accept this. And I, I think of the Robert Kennedy quote, which has been attributed to some other people, but you know, some men look at the world and ask why. I dream of a world that never was and ask why not. That human impulse that we all have as children comes back to us and we say, we can do better. You know, Picasso said he took an entire lifetime to learn to paint like a kid. Well, I think people should be taught how to innovate like kids again, how to not take no as the answer, but as the challenge, the gauntlets are thrown down. You know, most entrepreneurs who are successful, not, I mean, look, there's a lot of entrepreneurs from every class background, but 
some of my favorite and best entrepreneurs I've ever worked with are lower middle class and poor kids who have a chip on their shoulder and something to prove. You know, half of CEOs of unicorn companies are immigrants in the United States. By the way, a unicorn company is a private company worth $1 billion or more. You don't need permission. You don't need (laughs) to wait to do this. And if you think about some of the large oppressive problems in the world, everything from healthcare to education, even just clean water contraception. I mean, there's a hundred of them that you can think of, you know, to solve them through typical government channels and political movement channels is something which has to happen in parallel, but entrepreneurs just go make it happen and they don't wait. So you have to break the Mm. chain somewhere. And this is where I found is a good way to do it. And by the way, when I started working with different uh, countries, I actually started working at the national government level. And that frankly was a disaster because governments are governments for a reason. They just don't have the capacity to get out of their own way. <laughs> right, you right, know? right, 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 right. You know, Abba Iban had a quote once uh, about Yasser Arafat where he said he's never missed an opportunity to miss an opportunity. And that's basically <laughs> every structural institution that exists because they better perpetuate themselves. Entrepreneurs are like weeds growing up between the cracks and the sidewalk. They don't wait. Mm-hmm. They don't they ask. Make it happen. They just do. And so, so here's. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. And yeah, I have a question just popped to me. But go ahead. No, go ahead. I, so, so here's my question. So, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you this question specifically as a black man in North America because that's all I am. All right. Now, um, coming from my background, you know, uh, uh, I grew up. Uh, reading Malcolm X, right, and and Marcus Garvey, and you know there was a big movement of do for self, right? Like, you know, African Americans should you know run the bulk of the institutions in their own community, right? Um, and and this was this this kind of grew into this idea that Malcolm X kind of uh, helped cultivate from Marcus Garvey on like Pan Africanism, right? That you know. African-Americans will do business with with Africans on the continent, vice versa, and stuff like that, and city to city, state to state. And then, you know, of course, you know, he he he's uh, assassinated and MLK is assassinated and a bunch of stuff goes wrong. Now, I'm looking at America right now. And I mean, like, as we speak, uh, buildings are on fire. Police departments uh, have been burned to the ground. Um, and a lot of buildings, city to city, right, even some here, I think, in the Bay, maybe, uh, have been almost irreparably damaged. Now, while that saddens me and it frustrates me, while I understand, you know, a lot of the rage that led to these incidents, um, I say to myself, okay, there must be an opportunity for black people to have a leadership position in the rebuilding of these buildings and potential institutions and businesses. But I can imagine just speaking for myself that that feels really overwhelming. So if, if, if I'm an African-American man, woman, teenager, and I see, and I feel the same way, where do you start? Where, where do you start trying to create something new? Well, there's a lot in that. I mean, my, my first reaction was to say that a lot of what Malcolm X and Marcus Garvey theorized of a commonality 
with Africans on the continent business-wise never materialized because many Americans don't realize just how American they are until they go to discover the roots and realize, wait a minute, I'm really American. Um, and, <laughs> and, you know, I, I would just, Africa is going to be a powerhouse continent in 30, 40 years in terms of population, the youth, the explosion mm-hmm. of entrepreneurial energy is unbelievable there. But I would just say on that point, they'll come to your real question. If someone's aiming to aspire to a global market, why limit yourself? I mean, your market should be Vietnam and Latin America and mm. Oakland and Newark and Wyoming and Canada and Mexico. And so, you know, you, the thing is right. the, the capacity we have now for markets to be internationalized is a lot of the distribution channels and distinctions we used to make based upon racial identities or perceived ethnic paths are no right. longer sure. necessary, frankly. You know, you don't need that mm. anymore. You, you, if you have the best product, the best distribution, the best marketing theme, uh, the best virality, you can go anywhere. I mean, the world is more connected. Right. If you and- deliver, if, you're, if your product does what, it, what it's supposed to do and it, and, it, and, it, and it helps other people, it's going to win. Well, it should. doesn't always. But that, your best idea is don't win, which is one of the sad things. But execution and operations and tenacity plus good idea are a really good combination. And I will tell you, one of the greatest things that happened in my lifetime is the dream of the ancients, the Library of Alexandria, the world's knowledge all in one place, science and literature and history. We have that. Every one of us has it in our pocket. It's called our phone. Now, we use it for pornography and kitten videos instead of learning. but Everything known is there. You have access to the world's patent databases and scientific. And and you would be shocked at how the the penetration of mobile devices globally. So, you know, a lot of businesses you see in emerging countries are mobile based. And I think that's going to be a trend in the United States as well. But to go back to your your question was, what do you do? And I, I, you know, the answer I always gave when I think about what appear to be deep problems of inequality is you do everything. Now, as a one person, you can't do everything, but you pick something you have some passion about, you have a competitive advantage in, you know something someone doesn't, or you have an unfair Mm -hmm. advantage, or you have an edge, and you do that, and you trust that everyone else equally committed will do their part. And if everyone wakes up and attacks their problem the way Van Gogh attacked Canvas every morning, The world gets to be a better place. So maybe my neighbor is a rape crisis counselor. Maybe you build a startup focusing on dealing with some of the financial discrimination and the, you know, Mm. you know, someone else, you know, works on transportation needs or education reforms. I mean, there's collectively. Everyone just has to pick something and go. And the worst thing you can do is do nothing or stay on the sidelines. There's. This is about human talent being wasted. I mean, what are we talking about? We're mm. talking about the most precious resource, a resource which doesn't require you dig things up from the ground. It doesn't require a race to the bottom on labor. I mean, China can have, I know, 20 cents an hour labor and then it's cheaper in Myanmar than it's cheaper in some African country. Right, this, is, right, right. this, is, this isn't a race to exploit. This is a knowledge economy where there's no limit. It's not zero sum. It's additive. One of the great secrets of Silicon Valley is we don't look to rip the flesh off of a business partner for an extra 2%. That's East Coast business. We don't do that here. We want to make billions together and align interest. And that's why venture capital is such a great asset class and is different from private equity and a lot of other things. Now, they've merged a lot, by the way, but we want to create wealth together. But 
you know, find something you have a passion and dream about and ask the question, what is the problem I'm hearing here? You know, there's problem space and solution space. And you have to think about what the problems are, how people experience it. What is the pain point? And then solution space or what are the range of things that people need to solve that? You know, there's a story, which I don't know if it's true, but Henry Ford was asked how much he consulted customers. And he said, well, I didn't because they would just say they wanted a faster horse. And mm. that's actually not the right lesson because you should consult customers and you can be one of those customers. And many of the best entrepreneurs want their own product because they started out of their own frustration. But it's right. hearing, you know, what, what is it they, what is it they want? They want fast, faster transportation. So What's the answer to that? What is the range of answers to that? What is achievable that you can do? How do you think through that? How do you measure progress? How do you build mm. a small business to prove that there's value that people would pay for it, that you can grow it, and then that you can make it large, which is scale. So those are the, the primary elements of any business solution. And by the way, when I, when I talk about these tools, the tools of Silicon Valley don't just apply to for-profit businesses. I talk about that frequently because I am an investor and we're not out to return a zero because we did, you know, my investors are not pleased right, with right. that. So oddly, so, you know, but, but, but you can apply these same tools to governmental reform and under the Obama administration, many agencies actually adopt what are called lean startup methodologies, you know, department of education and right. others in order to bring some of the best insights of Silicon Valley. That's all been flushed out now and may it resume next right. January 21st, but, you know, <laughs> but, you know, government nonprofits, education institutions, existing large companies, the insights to build rapid growth, innovative entrepreneurial activity don't just apply to technology startups. Even a traditional brick and mortar business can adapt to and use some of these insights. I mean, this is business right, on too. steroids and then turbocharged. So if you want to see how the Formula One racers do it, you can apply it in your Honda Civic. You know, I mean, it's like we know right. how to and still and still make it move. Yeah. Now, here's something I want to run by you, right? Like, um, so my son just graduated with a, a degree in business, um, and and I'm really proud of him. I'm, I'm really happy for him. Um, and I remember while he was in college and he was, you know, going through these little different circles, social circles, you know, we talked about, you know, how few African-American men were, you know, interested in business and you know what I mean? Things like that. And I said, well, you know, as you rise, um, your, your circle of business is, is probably going to get wider and wider as you head towards the top. You know what I mean? That you, you, you know, there's going to be a lot of times where you're the only black dude in the room. And, you know, and, and a lot of times when I was working, especially at startup companies, I was often the only black guy in the room. And I think that one of the things that frustrates a lot of African-Americans is that they feel like the Valley specifically, but business in general is like a whites only club. Right. And it's a bunch of tech bros who moved here and, you know, take over San Francisco or Oakland. And I think that they're kind of trapped between intimidated and not interested in, in being around that. But like, how do we kind of look at like 
I believe if they stick with it and go forward that that they can do some awesome things and enrich not only their own community but enrich the tech company with their ideas. But what do you what do you think about people who are frustrated by that idea? Well, it, it's not just black men. I mean, you know, if you're a woman, you have the same narrative. It's a the bro culture, right? Mm. But this is mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, just some observations. So any any opportunity that has the mythology or the storytelling of rapid wealth creation attracts, you know, a young white demographic, you know, male demographic, whether it's online poker, Wall Street, doesn't matter. I mean, that's mm. kind of the way it works. It follows power. Power follows money. And that's one of the cycles we need to break by making this everyone's game and sharing the rules with everyone. If I look at the range of institutions that exist in the world, I would be a fool to deny the existence of discrimination or racial or gender disparities because it's as obvious as the numbers. But I also say that I want to reclaim a narrative that says Silicon Valley style innovation is not a tool of inequality, it is a tool of substantive economic opportunity and one of the most important tools of equality. You have to break economics if you want to break other things. It's, look, you're not going to stop physical violence by itself with economic opportunity and wealth creation, but it's part of the puzzle and you have to do it. And eventually wealth leads to your capacity to participate politically, to basically buy politicians. We call it lobbying and donations. Mm-hmm. You, you have mm-hmm. more, more mm-hmm. polite terms for this, but you know, you buy access, you, you, you buy schools effectively because your tax base now supports your neighborhood um, educational system. Economics matters in this. It's not the whole solution, but it's an important part of this diet. So I want to say that to anyone who feels excluded, you know, don't write this off. I talked to a lot of women and taught a lot of people of color who say, this isn't for me. It doesn't look like me. But what I say is, look, it doesn't matter what your skin color, whether you believe in a God or not, you know, what, mm-hmm. where you came from, what language you speak, if you can create a product with margins and revenues that people want, that solves a problem that's compelling, money will flow. It doesn't mean it's going to be as easy to raise capital. It doesn't mean it's going to be as easy to get advisors or mentors or always to have people want to back you because you don't look like they look and you don't talk like they talk. But at the end of the day, it's scoreboard, baby. No one cares if you can put up the numbers. And so it is... Right ultimately among the most friction-free opportunities out there. I mean, in Wall Street, you're going to work your way up through the system. Same at a law firm. I mean, you got to work your way up through associate and partner. I mean, that's a slog for a decade or two. You can build a startup that within 24 months or sooner can be a billion-dollar company if you hit it right. So that's it. You, You have to separate who's using the tools from what the tools themselves actually enable. And that is why I'm so committed to bringing the tools of Silicon Valley and innovation to a global audience. Uh, you know, I've always, you know, we've talked about this in, in, you know, privately and in some of the previous podcasts, yeah. I think we're in a war for innovation. We should, as a matter of policy, domestic, international, human progress should be the no- number one criteria that we look at every decision with that that's the lens. And, you know, I'm actually in the process of putting together and launching soon a website to bring all of the inside Silicon Valley secrets to make that accessible so that the tools of Silicon Valley are available to everyone. Is it going to be as easy 
if you grew up in a wealthy white family, of course not. But if you want to find the place where merit matters most, this is it. I mean, mm. you, you show me one more meritocratic, other than sports, perhaps, show me one more meritocratic system that exists in the United States. Right. You step in, you make it happen, and nobody can stop you. I think that that's really deep. That's a, that's a really good point, man. Like, um, And I say sports thinking of Colin Kaepernick, so I feel silly saying that. But um, <laughs> Right, right, right. I stand with Cap. The fist is up. I, I, um, I have one of his signed jerseys in my closet, and I don't wear it out lest I get beer thrown at it. So <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Now, but here's here's the other thing, though, right? Like, okay, between COVID nineteen and uh, 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 America being on fire, um, a lot of people are feeling like, you know. It's kind of hard to start a business right now. Is this is this something that's accurate? Because I feel like doing it. I ain't gonna lie. I'm, I'm interested. I I feel like when I see a lot of the crazy stuff, like there's a lot of opportunities out there. And I said that at the beginning of the show, but I really do. But you know, a lot of people feel like, yo, it's hard to start a business right now. And like, what do you what do you what do you what do you say to that? Well, it depends on the kind of business, right? Some businesses don't care because they're virtual or digital. Some are deeply affected because they require foot traffic if their service sector and so it has to come into a physical location and that will take time. And those are more obviously more capital intensive because they require rent and investment and renovation, whereas digital businesses often don't. Uh, there's a whole variety of everything in between. So if you're looking for something to start, I always ask people to think about what are the unfair advantages you think you have? I mean, do you know something other people don't? Do you mm. see problems other people don't? Do certain things upset you? You know it could be done better. Are there customers for what it is you think you know better or that upsets you? Do you can right. you validate that easily? And also think about the capital needs, because that bluntly is a, is a big thing. I mean, this is going back to an earlier question about what kind of businesses take off in emerging countries. And the answer is ones that don't require a lot of upfront money because you don't have it. So it does mm. skew the kinds of things you can do. You can't do fundamental research that requires 10 years and $20 million. In a right, right, right. Yeah, you're not, you're not going to get like Juniper Systems to send you an outline on on X because so, so, so you don't it, have the money. Yeah, so, it does, so they tend to be more e-commerce oriented or uh, teaching oriented where you can share knowledge or things you create or you know, more efficiently allocate resources. I mean, let me go on a tangent for a second. You know, there's a lot of anger, for example, at Uber in this term gig economy is being thrown around. And right. gig economy is a labor concept. What it means is we don't like or some people don't like the way Uber treats its drivers. And in the United States, because healthcare is often tied to employment as opposed to provided by right. the government, that really matters. And there's a lot of other things that come from whether you're full-time or part-time and exempt or non-exempt. But put the labor issue aside, because how we handle that can be a matter of policy. What Uber really does is reallocate inefficiently allocated resources. Same with Airbnb. You have room in your car. I'm going to the airport. You can take me. You have a room in your house. I can mm -hmm. stay in it. It's what, what technology is really good at is allocating resources. It's good at creating networks. You know, think about eBay. You know, why are all the sellers there? All the mm -hmm. buyers are there. Why are the buyers? Because of the sellers. And 
Right. You know, and, and opportunities for people to create content. I mean, how, how much content does Facebook and Twitter produce? Well, it turns out not much. I mean, most of it's done by their users, you know, billions of posts right. basically daily that's highly leveraged. So what a startup company, I mean, among the things startup companies are good at is using a technology sensibility. And you can use this in a small business too, to engage customers for loyalty, to create content to become a tribe, to become, you know, evangelists for you, to create networks and to share information, to disseminate things. Maybe you know something better than a number of other people. Maybe you're a five on the 10 point scale, but there's a lot more one, two, threes and fours than there are sixes through tens. So teach them that. Can Mm. you create a business around that? Can you, I mean, I don't want to talk like Etsy necessarily, but maybe you have a craft, maybe you have something which, you know, brings, here's another example. Um, there's an entrepreneur in Malaysia who started by talking about how to be Islamic chic. You know, you could be Sharia compliant as a woman and not look like a burlap sack. Right. And right. And, <laughs> and so what it turned into is she now is a major distribution channel for, you know, designers in this tradition to distribute all over the world, mm-hmm. you know, to De- Detroit and London and New York and Los Angeles and other places where there's a high end clientele that's willing to pay premium you know, for these right. trends. For, and so for, for, for culturally stylish, uh, yeah. gear that, that, that Muslim women would, would prefer. Yeah. For example, and I can rattle off a hundred of those, but you know, it all starts with, do I see something someone else doesn't? Is there a business that should exist? What valuable business doesn't exist that should, what do I know an answer to what annoys me? And some things you can't solve, like, you know, DMV should be solved through technology, but it won't because it's just the way it works. Mm. But, but so take something that actually is realistic or you'll just, (laughs) you know, bludgeon your head too much into the wall, but there's plenty of problems that are solvable. And then you test again, let's go back to the, I mentioned briefly, growth and value hypotheses. You don't have to build an entire business to see if you have a viable model. You know, maybe you have a, you know, some businesses create a product sheet and go in and say, would you buy this? What, why wouldn't you buy it? What features would, even if nothing exists or you create a website, which is easier than ever, by the way, with all the off the shelf tools, you know, advertising some particular thing, click here. If you want to buy, oops, you caught us early. We're not ready. Put your name and email down. If you want this, it's just a way Mm -hmm. of gathering information. You know, what would you buy? And you know, the, the customer is your key to life because they ultimately pay your bills. And people have this mythology that say Steve Jobs never listened to customers because he just saw this vision. That's nonsense. Apple is one of the most sophisticated customer-based design thinking programs in the world. It's why they were successful. They weren't the first music player. They just nailed the design because they thought about how a human would interact right. and think about it. So a lot of the insights come from human empathy. What would a human do? How would they solve their problem? What are their barriers? Is it cultural? Mm-hmm. Is this why, you know, and you can apply this to lots of things. I've seen, you know, what I've been describing as lean startup and to a lesser extent design methodology. I've seen these tools be applied to how you get birth control to women in West Africa. How do you deal with the cultural barriers? What are the distribution barriers? What are the governmental barriers? How do you think in a way that solves an actual human problem and then test that cheaply without a large expenditure of capital and then scale it once you've refined the model. These are some of the tools. There's a hundred others. I'm just scratching the surface. But you know, one of the reasons why Silicon Valley has pioneered these tools is just the nature of what I do. So I take, say, my pension fund's money and I got 10 years to give it back and then some. 
because that's my fund life. And so I don't have time to right. build a multi-generational 30-year business turning out dividends. I can't do that. I have to get them large quickly. So we have really pioneered tools that allow you to de-risk, to test, to prototype, to rapidly iterate and learn, and to grow fast quickly once you've nailed what it is. And what it is, right. And right, that, right, right. that's why the businesses created here are so extraordinary. It's why you look at the top five companies. They're all technology companies. And they're not all Silicon Valley, Microsoft and Amazon or Seattle. But you know, the top five companies right, in the right. world are all tech venture-backed companies. Or once upon a time, we're venture back. And so th- this is the toolkit we have pioneered. So if you're looking for the ability to test, to iterate, to grow rapidly in any field, we have your answers right here because we had to invent them. So, you know, in, 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 as we get ready to wind this down, you know, this is, this is also an important thing. Like, you know, when you see a lot of the back to what's going on with a lot of the, 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 the burning of the buildings and the, and the, and the frustration by, by a lot of folks in America is that, you know, I think a lot of people see or have Silicon Valley and technology companies framed as, you know, Companies that take advantage, right? That 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 tech companies are in the way. That tech companies are are are, are, are something that that that's wrong with America. Now, being from the Bay and working in Silicon Valley uh, as long as I have over the years, now I don't believe that. But a lot of people see tech companies as the enemy. So, how do we change that? Well, look, everyone hates the smartest kid in class. I, that was my growing up. And I think a lot of <laughs> listeners know that too. And that's, you know, when you're number one, you're going to draw attention. So that's the nature right. of the beast. But what I would say to anyone who is displeased with Silicon Valley, knock them off their perch. I mean, these companies mm. didn't exist 20 years ago. I mean, Apple did, but they were almost on their death's door at that point. That's true. Um, and many people thought they would be bankrupt, but everyone's vulnerable to being knocked off their perch because that's what technology does. So Facebook, for example, is hemorrhaging customers in the United States. And I did a program last year with middle school and high school age girls on design thinking innovation. And they did a Facebook Mm -hmm. example and only two people out of the room of 60 had a Facebook account. I was like, whoa, (laughs) you know, right. Like, so the, so Create your own network that solves a problem that they don't. Maybe it's better intellectual community. Maybe it's talking about certain issues that don't dissolve to Hitler references and five posts that mm. need to be moderated. Maybe mm-hmm. it, I mean, the thing about this is you don't have to tolerate this. By the way, everyone wants to demonize Silicon Valley. It's easy. Hollywood was a punching bag, not Silicon Valley. It's easy for politicians right, to score right. points. But what are people upset about? I mean, really, when you think about it, one is the size and right. the answer is go beat them at their own game because the tools are available to you. By the way, you have more access to information and more technology tools and lower barriers to create a startup than Steve Jobs and Bill Gates did when they started. So what's your excuse? I mean, they did right, it when it was harder. There's, there's so much. There's so much that exists now that wasn't even you can conceived build a, then. You, you can get to a million. You can get to 100 million people quickly. You can build your own websites. You can test quickly, rapidly. You have infrastructure. You don't have to build your own server farm. It's just there. Distribution. I mean, this is something that we, it's never been easier. So go, go knock them off their perch. But the other thing is yeah. the tools are a mirror of ourselves. So 
why is Facebook such a cesspit? And the answer is because we are as the United States. I'm sorry, but Facebook, we are what makes Facebook. But, you know, no, you know, I, I don't think when Zuckerberg talks about this was meant to be noble, to inspire conversations and community. That's nonsense. I mean, he started at Harvard as hot or not, where you could rank how attractive women are. So there were not noble right. goals behind it originally, whatever the mythology is now. But that said, if you, you know, having grown up in rural Kansas, where you didn't have these technologies, if you're alone, in Wyoming or Kansas or someplace, and you feel like you don't fit in, you're that girl in the back of a Detroit classroom with a 150 IQ who's teased by the boys and mercilessly mocked and has mm-hmm. a crappy home life. You don't have to feel alone. You have a global community. It can be aspirational. It can be noble. It can give people the sense of community. Now, what it's done instead is reinforce tribalism. So we reinforce and hear what we want to hear. The funnel, the confirmation bias is what it really does. It's made us, mm. in many ways, we look. Art is amazing because I have the capacity to live through the experience of someone a thousand years ago. And my words and my music can be lived a thousand years from now. And I can experience what a gay Vietnamese man goes through. I can experience what someone across the street goes through and they can listen to me as well. And technology has made it so that everyone can have access to almost everyone in the world. That's not entirely true, but close enough. And it's getting there. Right. So we have within our hands this capacity to form community, to to break barriers, to see who we are as humans, yet it has brought our bad side out and has reinforced the worst of us. And it's exploitable by bots and algorithms, you know, where hate groups can take advantage. And so the things that are to detest about technology are the things that frankly are wrong with us as humans. And that is an excuse technology's role because Facebook is based upon scientifically proven addictive behaviors. Um, and we can talk about that at some point, but that's what keeps you scrolling through the newsfeed. It's based on the psychology of addiction and they engineer for it. But ultimately mm. we have to step up our game as at least the subset of the population that cares about progress and innovation and being better. And although it seems like a dark place and the reactionary forces are out globally, whether it's Duterte in the Philippines or Bolsonaro or Putin or Trump right mm-hmm. here at home or Orban in Hungary, mm-hmm. that's a reaction to the fact that the world is getting closer, that people are becoming more mixed, are seeing a more global perspective, we're able to glimpse things that were not even imaginable 20 years before. So the reaction is always strong and fierce, but the tide's there. And you know, it still mm. bends toward justice. It just does. The world's yeah. The greatest story of the last 20 years. I gave a presentation in 1998, and I wish I had recorded it, but I said the story of the next 10 years is going to be. The greatest increase in the middle class for the greatest number of people in the shortest period of time in human history. And the only thing that's wrong about that statement is it's now 22 years and going. It wasn't just 10 years. Right. Now, that corresponded, by the way, with the stagnation of the U.S. middle class. And that's not an accident because we more or less gave up on knowledge and education and striving. We just thought it was a birthright as an American. You could roll out of bed, especially if you're white, and just have a good job. And didn't have to study, didn't have to work hard, didn't have to learn math and science. Mm, well, just show up. It doesn't work that way because guess what? Everyone else in the world wants for their children what we want. They want better lives and education. And everyone aspires to the same dream. And so we pioneered these tools right here in the United States and in Silicon Valley in particular. This is where the gold rush was in the 1840s. And, you know, all over the United States, people take risks. We are good at this. We, we, have this kind of national character where we see ourselves as mavericks and people that rebel against the system. Yet, statistically, we have one of the lowest class mobility 
uh, factors of any developed country. <laughs> People tend to stay poor mm. if they're poor and they tend to stay rich if they're rich. And so the right. mythology and the reality have diverged in important ways, but we don't have to let that be. We can reclaim be the reality. The we can you know there's always this negative text in American history, right? You have Thomas Jefferson, who is basically raping Sally Hemings, talking about the equality of humans. I mean, we've always from the beginning had mm-hmm. these tensions between what we say and what the reality is. And it's easy to say, oh, that's just a contradiction. No, I mean, you could make the argument as Derek Bell and others make that it's because of that that we are America. But putting it aside, in 2020, you have the capacity now to take those opportunities, those negative texts to say, I want to reclaim technology. I want to reclaim opportunity and entrepreneurship and risk-taking for myself, my community, my equality. And I don't, and whatever you think about the philosophy of that, the truth is you can do it and no one's going to stop you. And in fact, you will get investors Mm. piling up a mile long once you start to nail those things. I mean, whatever donations that investor may have made to some Republican cause, if you're making a million dollars a month, you're going to get their investment check because business is business. So it doesn't matter what the motives are scoreboard. And that's why entrepreneurship, I think, is, is is the most egalitarian Thing we still have left. And frankly, it's the only thing we have left because wow. I don't know what else we do as a country. We're not going to manufacture again. Those days are gone. Mm, so I, mean, true. I mean, we can pander all we want politically to coal miners in West Virginia, but that's just lying to people. It's not. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just like kind of dangling onto an old tradition, but it's not really going to take us anywhere. Um, let me ask you two to my two. I got two final questions. The first is really quick. I'm just curious. The second is going to deal with hip hop. The first question is, what do you think about Bitcoin for real? Is it dead? What do you think about cryptocurrencies in general? I'm curious. Um, <laughs> oh, that's complicated. I'll, I'll be. <laughs> well, let me just give a few quick uh, answers here that won't get me in too much trouble with my friends. So okay. I think Bitcoin proper probably has too many technology flaws that will prohibit it from becoming the winner. But the idea of a frictionless currency system will win eventually. Now, here's an interesting thing. A lot of the problems with Bitcoin, aside from its, and I'm going to lump a bunch of cryptocurrencies in here. So for anyone who really knows this field, I'm not an idiot. I do know the differences, but just forgive me for simplicity in a a podcast. Most of the the cryptocurrencies are built around peer-to-peer peer transfer. And when national governments hear this, they think, oh, tax evasion, sex trafficking, child Mm -hmm. porn, drug dealing. You know, it's a way for people to move money in an an untraceable, hidden way. And also peer-to-peer transfer, meaning, you know, I give money to you or to someone I know in India or wherever, is, I don't know, one-tenth of a percent, one, two-tenths of a percent Mm -hmm. of the global money market. You know, I remember I said earlier, go with the opportunities. What's the opportunity? The opportunity is multinationals and governments transferring among and to each other. That's where the trillions of dollars are every single night. And so, right. you, you, I mean, what I said when this first started, you know, 10 years ago is if I were to put my money and we have no bets on this space, although I have a personal investment, but I'll ignore that uh, as a fund, we have no bets, but where I would put my money is 
what is the currency that is going to facilitate the actual transfer of the trillions of dollars in an auditable, traceable way? So now, instead of regulators hearing tax fraud and trafficking and drugs, they say, oh, now I have a way to know with certainty that a transaction has occurred, that there's a ledger that tells me that it's it's authentic and where it happened in that makes things frictionless. If you look at what keeps large banks alive, I mean, yes, they make $70 billion on bounce check fees, 35 billion consumer, 35 billion business. So they make, they print money on ripping off the poor and lower middle class, but they make a bigger pile of money off of taking pieces of each of those transactions internationally when they really add no value. I mean, if you could do this on a ledger-based system, you know, why do I need to involve Citibank in this? And that's actually a scary thing for large financial institutions. But central banks and national governments are looking at this problem. And some of the biggest plays that no one knows about are in that. So you follow where the money's at. Mm. And and another thing is you typically don't do well going to war against governments. I mean, I would never invest in a company that was basically going to be regulated into oblivion. And there's also the energy usage problem with Bitcoin, which is a whole sore spot because of the computational power to mine and how much energy that consumes. Yeah. A friend of mine was telling me about that. Actually, I was, I was talking, uh, I was talking about that, like about dang, almost a year ago. And it's funny that you just mentioned it now. No, I appreciate that. Now the, 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 the last question I want to run by you is, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, Bishop Chronicles, even though like uh, I'm not going to ask you to quote any rap lyrics, but I'm going to say <laughs> that I am, that I am, I am, I am always in, of all the things that hip hop has brought to the world outside of the music that I love, et cetera, et cetera, graffiti, whatever. I'm really impressed by the growth of entrepreneurship, you know, that this music that people said wasn't music, that it wasn't culturally relevant, et cetera, et cetera. Now it's a billion dollar industry. And you have people like Jay-Z, like Diddy, like Dr. Dre, and a bunch of other people who don't even have nearly as much money as them, but they have a lot of money through entrepreneurship. And especially people like Nas, who, who, who uh, you know, does a lot of investing in technology and stuff like that. What are your thoughts about just the spirit of hip hop entrepreneurship and any connections that you can bring to it where, where technology is, is an intersection? That is a great question. And I think we can find the answers with Lin-Manuel Miranda, who I will quote any chance I get. So for those who've not seen this video, Miranda premiered his concept album of Hamilton at the White House with President Obama and Michelle Obama a year or two before the actual musical came out. And the way he introduced it is that he was working on a hip hop concept album about America's first hip hop artist, Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton. And he got a lot of laughs. And if you've not watched the video on YouTube, it's definitely worth watching. But listening to Miranda explain his rationalization of how he could see this, although an abolitionist, someone who would have been horrified to be played by Miranda 200 years later to see this staid white guy be a hip hop artist, Miranda's answer was he rode his way out of poverty. He was stuck in the Caribbean on an island with his family gone. He had no way out. And this was his opportunity to create with his mind, to sit down with the pen and paper and write his way out. And I think about innovation ultimately being the same way. It's deeply expressive. It's deeply creative. Uh, 
when I used to teach computer science, we taught it as an act of beauty, an act of creation. It was about abstracting and finding the creativity and the problem and the base case solution. Yes, you had to write code just as an artist has to put uh, a brush to paper and an art. Composer has to put pen to a staff of music, but at the end of the day, you're finding beauty and you're looking for insights about how to make something elegant. And all forms of innovation really are about that. So there's a common core about anyone can use these tools to find beauty, to find artistic expression, and to alleviate themselves, frankly, from abject poverty and everything in between. Uh, there's another element, and this goes back to Miranda as well. I actually was lucky enough to get to meet him with Fab Five Freddy, which is by itself a whole interesting story. And I have a picture of me and Miranda and Fab and my wife on, on my Facebook page for those who are interested. But the discussion we had when I met Miranda is that today, Hamilton wouldn't be in government he had a big imagination about creating enormous ideas on a canvas that was as large as life, creating entire systems out of his mind. And the entire commercial system we have today in the United States is his creation. We don't give him enough credit for that. But today, that's not possible. If Hamilton were alive today, he wouldn't be in Washington. You can't create big ideas. It's blood sport to kill people and take them down. Where he would be is in Silicon Valley. He would be in Twitter wars with Musk and Gates, and he would be his obnoxious, insufferable self, brilliant as always, and it would be a joy to watch, and he would create extraordinary things, but that's where people go who have big ideas and just want to be measured by the content of what they are able to create. So I think the connections of hip-hop and innovation are deep and I'm sorry to have to get Miranda into this, but anytime I can mention him, I'm going to use him as my analogy, but it's about artistic expression. It's about having a big canvas where there are no limits. And actually, there's one other analogy I think I want to draw here. I mean, hip hop is, I think, in some quarters been rightly criticized for some of the deep misogyny among at least certain artists. And that's no different than Silicon Valley, where there has bluntly been a bro culture that has been exclusionary and sexist. But that doesn't make the tools wrong. The tools can be used for expression, which is abhorrent or noble, which makes us better or drags us down into the mud. And maybe the moral of the story is you got to separate the tools from the people who use it in the expression. But everyone can use these tools. Hip-hop is about deeply expressing one's aspiration, a community's aspirations, and innovation is about expressing our deep aspirations as humans to improve our environment, to become better, to add value to ourselves and to others and to future generations. That really, to me, is what Silicon Valley style innovation is about, and you can do that no matter where you are, whether you're in Mumbai or whether you're in Nairobi or whether you're in Denver. The tools apply to everyone and there are no limits. That's really what all art is about. And innovation to me is absolutely a form of art. Ooh, I like that. So, man, I want to thank you for being on Bishop Chronicles. And I know there's going to be a lot of other people who want to follow up, who want to learn more, who want to gain this kind of information. So how can people get a hold of you? How can they learn more from you and, and get more in line with, with, with what you do on a deeper level? Sure. So it's a perfect time to ask that question. So I've 
instead of being in North Africa, where I should have been teaching entrepreneurship, I decided in my quarantine time to build a website to digitize the knowledge I've accumulated over 20 years of programs in, in 22 countries, actually over 200 to 7,000 people. Like it's been really, it's a lot of work now they look back at it. So I'm making that digitally. <laughs> yeah. av- it's a lot of travel. I'm getting too old for those plane trips. <laughs> 16 hours is just, my body can't take it. So I've, I've digitized that onto a website called demystifying Silicon Valley and, or demystifying SV, if you want to type that in shorter.com, mm-hmm. where I've created a site to teach entrepreneurship to everyone who is interested. And I've interviewed over my years a lot of people about what they wanted because I've wanted to do this for a long time. And so there's two components to it. One is just the substantive knowledge. Like this isn't some dumbed down course. This is the best, highest end secrets from Silicon Valley insiders, from the most high end companies. I used to run some of the best patent strategy programs, work on some of the biggest IPOs. I'm going to bring all those secrets and share those. So this, when it is all done with the first level and the second level of courses, I hope this stands on its own with the Harvard or Stanford MBA and that some people will say it was better. That's the standard I aspire to. And the second part, which I think I was honestly a little resistant to at first because of the work it entailed, but everyone wanted it was a community. And here's why. When you go anywhere in Silicon Valley, other than during quarantine, Everyone's talking about entrepreneurship and innovation and ideas and networks and how do you connect with someone, Mm -hmm. mentors. Every great company has that extended kinship. If you're in Wichita or you're in Cape Town, that's hard. So that's, yeah, it's going to be slow. slow. And so I, I put together a set of community features on the site for people who are serious. You know, if you are seriously aspiring innovator, entrepreneur, or investor, where you can engage in meaningful conversation with like-minded people. And I created forums where you can share ideas and business plans for feedback. I have a success story forum where if you have something good happen to you, I want you to post it so people can root for you and congratulate right, you. So you can see what you know, happened. Network, right, 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 right. Um, ask questions. You know, We have monthly webinars that will start. The site's launching in June. And I could not be more excited. This is a dream I've had for so long. You know, One of the things I say yeah. is, you know, if... For all those people I grew up with, and that's just one town of like you know, 11, 12,000 people who threw away their capacity to add to the world. If we could just save one and then multiply that by the thousands of towns like that in the United States and multiply that by every country in the world. You know, like I say, there's one person somewhere you're talking to and you don't know who they are and they don't always know who they are. But if you can capture that imagination and make them know that they can dream they can create, they can execute, and they have the tools to do it. That's magic. That's transforming the world. And, you know, it's not a get rich quick thing. This is hard work. You know, an entrepreneur is someone who works 70 hours to avoid working for someone else for 40. And right. it's lonely and the failure rate's high. But if you're willing to put the time and the effort and learn best practices, you can dramatically change the odds in your favor. And, you know, whether you're a young entrepreneur who thinks you want to build a tech company or you're just in a traditional business and you want to you know, take some of these tools. So you're not the bookstore looking at Amazon running the tank over your head. You know, you can disrupt yourself and do yeah. it. I mean, th- this, these courses yeah. are for you. I've built them with a lot of people in mind and they're built upon, like I say, over 200 programs over 20 years all over the world. Every question I was asked, everything people wanted to right. know. Broken down. Broken down. Well, man, you know, I got to say, Again, thank you for 
coming back to Bishop Chronicles. Thank you for sharing all this information because I know in this time in America, people want to know how they can jumpstart their own life, you know, make a good amount of money, help people in their own family, their own community. And it sounds like demystifying Silicon Valley is going to be a great way to start that happening. And uh, I really appreciate you coming on and, and breaking it down, man. At any time, I'm always here. I, this is among the favorite interviews I ever give. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, it means a lot to me, man. It means a lot to me because you, uh, you know, smart dude. I, I, I tell people all the time. I really don't know another person um, like you in terms of your 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 depth of knowledge and your sincerity. So, I appreciate your time. Thank you for coming on Bishop Chronicles and. Uh, Again, if you're listening, go to DemystifyingSiliconValley.com and see for yourself. Thanks again, David. Thank you. Teacher, what style is that?